0: is Sarah Zarr and you are listening to This Creative Life. You can find out more about the podcast and all the episode notes at thiscreativelife.substack.com or you can never go to thiscreativelife.substack.com. It doesn't matter. You can always get the notes through the info area of the episode in your app. Uh, if you would like, though, you can become a paying subscriber if you like to support this whole Sarah Zar does podcasts ecosystem. Uh, and right now paying subscribers are getting the annotated courageous creativity audio. You can check that out or just skip this intro next time because you're probably sick of me talking about this if you are a regular listener. Anyway, my guest today is Amy Gentry, author of three um. I want to call them psychological thrillers. What do you call them, Amy? Would that be a fair? Um, I think that's what people call them. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Hi. Uh, and one thirty-three and a third on boys for Pele by the great Tori Amos. And if you don't know about 33 and a third, it's a series of books. Each book is about a record album, a record album, a CD, whatever the kids call it now. I don't know. Um, A bunch of, bunch of, (laughs) bunch of files, (laughs) a bunch of of (laughs) of MP3s together in a list, a playlist. Um, Mm -hmm amy's most recent book bad habits came out yesterday as we record this and i actually just finished it last night and it was great welcome amy thank you so much sarah for having me on so this is wednesday february 3rd as we record um bad habits came out yesterday so you've joined the ranks of authors with a book out during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And well, how did that go? And how are you doing? Oh, well, you know, first of all, it uh, it is still the pandemic, obviously.
1: And it's a really hard time right now. And the last year has been really difficult. But I first wanted to say that compared to the authors who had their books come out early in the pandemic, I feel like it's... It's a totally different landscape and it's almost, you know, I I feel like it's not even fair to compare them, you know, their experience Mm -hmm. with mine because people have really figured things out by now. I mean, at this point, we've had a year of virtual book launches and appearances and a year of just, you know... um, I don't know, all the other stuff, shipping delays Mm -hmm. to bookstores and curbside pickup at local bookstores. And so I think there's just more in place now to support authors. And I'm thrilled with that. Um, A lot of it has worked to my advantage, but um, yeah, in another way, I I almost feel strange saying this because, you know, I, I was feeling really sad about the, about not having a, an in-person book launch as well. I mean, I kept it to myself, but just feeling um, a little bit like lonely in a way and isolated because this is the the time when authors come out of their shells and everyone throws them a big party, you know? Um, But- Last night's event, um, I was lucky enough to have Laura Lippman agree to do my event with me, who is a, you know, she's an amazing, best-selling, and critically beloved crime writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I could never have had that event with her. She lives in Baltimore and New Orleans, and I could never have had an event with her in a normal year. She was amazing and the event was incredible and like 150 people or more from like every walk of my life you know showed up on you know in the little chat box i could see their names (laughs) popping up and i almost started crying right before i turned on my video when i was just seeing the names i just about lost it um I've never seen so many people in a room together celebrating one of my books. And even though I couldn't see their faces and I, you know, I couldn't get that vibe that I normally get at a book launch. It was certainly the most Mm (laughs) vibey. I just it just felt like so full of love. And it was shocking to me that a Zoom event could feel that way, because I think we've all been to a lot of them. And we know that there's certain... That's not the... Element. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's the norm. No. Love it's love not like what the, the phrase that springs to mind usually.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it just... It's such an artificial medium, but... Um, I don't know. I just am still kind of like a little giddy, to be honest. It was great. So that's I, feel super that's, lucky.
0: <laughs> that's I have to say, as someone who had a book come out early in the pandemic. Mm. Um, yeah, no one knew what to do or what was going on. And it was just like, well, nothing or chaos. So anyway, you I'm know, not going to feel sorry for myself about it.
1: I mean, I just feel like that whole, you know, it's like maybe three or four months. The first two months were the worst. Mm-hmm. And then, and then three, four, five months afterward, it was rougher, but, you know, bumpy. But that, that first couple of months in the pandemic, I still, there's so many amazing books that came out during that time. It was a really good month. And I still talk up those books whenever I can because I just feel like, you know, a lot of those books didn't get their due. And I, I, know other people are also trying to kind of go back and pick up that thread, but yeah, it's just a bummer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that your book had to fall in that that basket.
0: In some ways, I've talked about this before, but in some ways, it's also like when you have a book that doesn't perform as well as you and your publisher hoped it would, it's kind of nice to have an excuse to pin it on. (laughs) Just be like, I don't need to look reflectively at how we handled that because... 2020 let's just blame that for everything. So I love that actually. So that's, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Um,
1: go ahead. (laughs) I will also say that I will also say that, um, I totally use that excuse as well in promotion. And my, I talked to my agent early on and was like, you know, what are we going to do? I really want to reach out to these communities, but I just have never done as much direct marketing and direct appeal as I have for this book ever Mm -hmm. before. And she said, she just said she was like take take the gloves off amy just like go full throttle because it's a pandemic like you can just say that when you reach out to people like excuse me i would not normally bug you in your Uh dms (laughs) but it is a pandemic out there and i do really want this book to do well so please help and people um a lot of people respond to you know to being asked for help actually um funnily enough. And, uh, and yeah, people were really kind. Again, I think that's with a lot of lead time, it was sort of mm-hmm. easier to deploy that, but I totally, I totally, uh, worked that angle. <laughs>
0: that, that's great. And it's interesting. Cause, um, Well, this connects a bit to the book. So uh, as I always remind folks who are pitching to have their authors on the podcast, this is not a book promotion podcast, but um, I do want to talk a little bit about your book. And let's see if between the two of us, we can do a gentle non-spoiler pitch of Bad Habits. So I have an excuse to ask you some follow up questions. So well, what made me think of it is when you said um, people respond to being asked for help. And I was thinking mm. about your character, Claire slash Mac, and how she's not good at asking for help. And I related to that oh, as yeah. a person who hates to ask for help. Um, so there's this woman, see, named Claire or yes. Mac, yeah. depending who you're talking to. <laughs> or Mackenzie. Um, or Mackenzie or Beauty Queen. It just depends. Just <laughs> she has a lot of shifting identities. And yeah. Um, yeah, then, then what happens, Amy? <laughs> well. Okay, so we meet
1: Mac when she's sort of at the top of her. Um, her career. She's um, the keynote speaker at a big academic conference. She's got this
0: fancy hotel suite. Um, and I have to say that, that introduction of the book made me miss <laughs> hotels and like going to conferences. <laughs> I know.
1: I did not know when I started this book. Like so much of it takes place in a hotel. <laughs> and yeah, me too. It, she talks about she talks a lot about the details of like the corner suite of mm-hmm. a hotel. Yeah, so then she runs into uh, someone in the lobby who's um, sort of from her past life, her estranged best friend, Gwen. And um, the, what we know right from the beginning is that something happened, that they were they went to grad school together and Gwen is no longer in academia and Claire is. And we know that something happened and that they're not friends because of some big thing. And uh, the flashbacks kind of then take us back through Max' life, which... Um, Starting even, you know, in her childhood and then on her way to like meeting Gwen and, and getting into this graduate program so that we can see what terrible thing happened there.
0: I feel like this book um, would be one of those good. It, it, it's an adult thriller, but I feel like it would be one of those good like crossovers to older YA readers mm. because a lot of the story takes place in graduate school and we also get a little bit of her growing up and I think it would yeah. appeal to, um, older teens, I guess. Yeah. I think, I think maybe, you know, they used to talk a lot about that new adult category
1: Hear It yeah. talked about as much anymore, well, but I, I feel like
0: what happened, this is according to people that I've talked to about it. Mm-hmm. I think it started out, there was a lot of promise about like new adult is going to be about characters who are in that like mm-hmm. later high school, college, early 20s phase of life. And then what happened was (laughs) what had happened was it became like um, like softcore. It was like an excuse going, oh, these characters are like 19. So now it can just be... all about sex and not so much about like, what's it like being at that life stage in well, your kind of development like. as a human? <laughs> Isn't that kind of what it's like, though? I mean, I mean, there's... I don't know. I got married when I was 19. So oh, wow, it's different. But <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that is that's a whole experience. Yeah, I think this would kind of if new adult were a real category. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this could like slide between between that and adult. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That's a fair the amount of sex. Me. I mean, it's sexy. I was going to say it's actually <laughs> it a pretty sexy. I know. As I was saying that, I'm like, it kind of is your book. But anyway, I
1: started to kind of like blush <laughs> a little. I was like, does she does she know about the sex in the book? Yeah, it's actually it's funny because uh, it's I've never written sex scenes before this book, or at least for publication. <laughs> um, yeah. So this book really this book has, I think three or four, you know, pretty solid, uh, sex scenes of greater or lesser explicitness. And I, that is so much further than I have ever gone with any of my novels. So in fact, I didn't even really have love interests, um, well, I can't give any. There's spoilers for the other yeah. two novels. I mean, I, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't yeah. say this is a
0: love interest. No, no,
1: no. It's not. Yeah, that's, that's true. Okay, but it is. I, I, I don't didn't... want to
0: sell this as a rom com. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a just a cheerful rom. i just now. Know? I'm just imagining this. It's like, what if when Claire meets Bethany, it's like a, it's like a meet cute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we could just reimagine this whole story.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the first page has her meeting. Um, she's Claire. The in her like fancy professor mode, she has like a a graduate student she's picked up at the reception after her keynote. A boy toy, a boy toy, <laughs> and yeah, that was really fun. She calls him Harvard the whole book. <laughs> Because she thinks maybe he he goes to Harvard, but his name is irrelevant. (laughs) Yeah, his name is irrelevant. He's just like the latest um, elbow patched guy that she picks up. And and uh, yes, as we see in the story, she is bisexual. So she sleeps with both women and men. And uh, and yeah, it's a big part of who she is, actually. And that sort of surprised me. It wasn't I didn't go into the story necessarily thinking that, you know,
0: but. That's what's fun about writing. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, your character just does something and you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. That is the only fun thing about writing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So you have a PhD. So Mm -hmm. technically you are Dr. Amy Gentry. I am. Um, You have a PhD in English from the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I I loved the detail in your bio that your dissertation is on miniatures and modernism, which... I'm sure is great. And I don't want to not take it seriously, but the book has a lot of like bleak, sarcastic humor about, um, you know, the, like the program that the character is in is called emerging studies. So everything is kind of Esoteric and yeah. <laughs> opaque. But um I'm gonna take a shot in the dark here and guess you had some experiences in that process <laughs> of getting your PhD that made up some of the raw material of Claire's story.
1: Yeah, I mean absolutely. Um people are not gonna have to Google too hard to figure out where I went to grad <laughs> school and and what I did there. Um it's funny you bring up the dissertation because it is this funny spot for me. I actually love my parts of my dissertation and I still, you know, I, I still partly believe in it in a way, but I also, you know, am really conscious that in order to make it out of grad school, because by the time I defended my dissertation, I was pretty sure I was not going on the market or not going back on the market rather. Um, yeah. So I, by the time I defended it, I kind of knew that a lot of it was, um, you know, I can, I can swear, right? I can oh, yeah. swear on this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of it was bullshit. And, um, I think I had just, even now I'm sort of afraid to go back and look at it because I know that some of it is real and some of it is bullshit and I can't really always tell the
0: difference. (laughs) Who can? I mean, that is the question, kind of one of the questions of the
1: book. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Being in that environment. um, One of the things I, I had to really thread the needle in this book is just making that academic satire, like just sharp enough that people will, I think if you're from that world, you'll You'll laugh, you know, you'll recognize how possible this absurd stuff is, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but to also, I don't necessarily want to skewer it. Well, I'm skewering it, but I don't want to invalidate it completely because I want to leave open the possibility. Like the important thing is how Mac feels about it and her sense of like just being disoriented is much more important than the question of whether what they're studying is really real. Like I don't really care if people want to study bird call electronica, which is like one of
0: the, the, yeah, yeah, the job talk. (laughs) Yeah. One of
1: the, one of the areas of study, you know, or virtual museum. DMs or whatever. Honestly, that stuff all sounds pretty cool to me. And I think there's probably <laughs> fun stuff to say about it. But the important thing is that you, she should never really know. She never really knows. And the reader should never really know where they stand in terms right. of like, is this really real or not?
0: <laughs> well, and that's one of the things I, I loved about the book. And it's one of my areas of interest as a writer is that feeling of being an imposter feeling on the outside, trying to catch up with the codes and the norms and the language of a world that is not where you're from, but it's a world you want to move into. That's a very YA, that's a very YA place to live too, right? Yeah. 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 Um, And I just love some of the scenes where she's listening to her advisor kind of give her these one-on-one tutorials and, or she's reading her advisor's work, this like revered professor whose work is like impossible (laughs) to understand. the uh what is it radical negation and it's, yeah ethical negation ethical is negation her and radical that's like negation. how she made
1: her name her book that she that made her famous is ethical negation and she and then her, she's working on radical negation and she supposedly. wants mac yeah supposedly and she wants <laughs> mac to kind of you know and her other students to sort of stimulate her brain so that she can make that next step well that's um, just a great
0: externalization that this really connected to the money anxiety that Claire slash Mac always has, um, because it's it's a class thing, you know. Yes. In a lot of ways, like the the privilege of talking in this language that is not grounded in anything real or practical yes. that you need to survive is. Yeah, and she comes from this background of financial struggle. Yeah, and I just loved all the money stuff, like saying like This is how much." I made waitressing this is how much I made doing work study and this is you know how much it costs to like keep my mom from harassing me um all those kind of details are all too rare in books and I feel like one reason for that is a lot of writers don't come from Mm. a background of money struggles I don't know. if they're professional writers, they're having yes. them now. <laughs>
1: they're having them now. But that's, yeah, I mean, writing is not unlike academia in that there's, there's often, if not family money, there's family support, there's generational mm-hmm. wealth, even if there's not um, wealth on the individual level. So that's something I wanted to think about in the book. And I, I mean, I, it's weird for me. I'm already kind of, people are asking like, Oh, is, is this like, you know, your, your life? <laughs> I mean, it's, I understand why people would conflate my experience with Max because they, it's obviously drawn from my experience to a large degree, but yeah, I didn't have, I wasn't like, you know, I come from a privileged background enough that uh, every time I ran out of money in my life, I always had somewhere to fall back to. Right. I yeah. had, yeah, I was able to move back home. I, for like a little while. I was able to, you know, go to my mom's therapist when I was like at the, in my worst depression after Mm -hmm. undergrad. So I, you know, but at the same time, I didn't really come from a background. I certainly didn't come from a background like Gwen's or like some of the people I met in grad school. I had never really met people who not only didn't have to worry about money but like really didn't have to worry about mm-hmm. money you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like really didn't have
0: to worry. like it about never money. once ever crossed yeah. their mind that they yeah. would ever have to think about yeah, money. those are the people who yeah. say that money doesn't solve your problems. Well, <laughs> you know, a
1: lot of them. I mean, it's weird because in grad school, everyone is studying material conditions. Um, you know, it's uh, sort of Marxist and sort of post-Marxist critique is still very much a part of mm-hmm. m- most graduate programs in the humanities. And and so, uh, you know, there are a lot of like Marxists in grad school who come from like massive wealth and don't have to ever worry about paying their bills and it's a real bizarre disjunct. And I don't think, I mean, I think in the book you know, some of the characters, one thing she finds out is that, you know, some of the characters you would think came from a background of wealth are in fact just extremely good at faking it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and others like Gwen are actually, you know, um, Gwen almost doesn't need grad school. (laughs) Like she kind of floats through it. It, it, She doesn't need it like, uh, she doesn't need the fantasy. She doesn't need the fantasy Mm -hmm. like Mac does. And and one thing that's been hard to explain in the book that I think you really hit on right away with that question is um why does Mac want to be a professor? Like if she comes mm-hmm. from this background, people are like why would she want a job that barely pays anything? You know, even at its best it doesn't pay a whole lot. Um, that just seems like so counterintuitive for a lot of people. And I think I, you know I mean, it is counterintuitive. Max motivations are not always the most logical, but for her really early on, she gets imprinted with this idea when she meets Gwen that the ultimate luxury is beauty and access to beauty that's free from material concerns Mm that just exists that, you know, that the life of the mind or, you know, artistic pursuits or, you know, being able to exist in a realm where you can buy shabby looking clothes even, you know, you can sort of, you don't have to be signaling wealth because, you know, it doesn't even matter to you because all the basic concerns are so squared away, you know, that you can just play in this like playground your
0: whole and it's life. A different, You're just like investing in a different currency yeah, and, you know, understanding that there's, yeah, there's a value and a wealth of, well, you described it better. I yeah, could. like
1: well just like this the beauty of ideas you know mm-hmm. it's just this like really ineffable thing and I think that that I do relate to I definitely um I grew up in a, a home where money was actually talked about a lot and um in a couple of different ways like there was always enough but we were very conscious of money like we were conscious of what was what we sort of were and weren't allowed to spend there was Mm -hmm. a sense of you know there was a sense that all the kids there were three of us were sort of responsible for um not costing too much right (laughs) and (laughs) and uh and I really did grow up with that sense of like you know all I want to do is be you know be like this kind of free happy-go-lucky artist type and I had this you know but my parents were like well but okay but you know you may say that's what you want but how are you gonna you know make a living and you can you will never have a house as nice as ours you know if you if you pursue this artistic pathway. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I totally feel, I feel like that aspect of Max longing is sort of borrowed a little bit from mine, but then developed because obviously it's accompanied. She has a lot of other lacks besides just financial struggles.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, that's another, you know, bit of storytelling DNA that resonates with mine is all the parental abandonment going on and the, parentification of mm-hmm. her at an early age and all of that good stuff. Um, but I want to talk about how you went from your previous life mm-hmm um as an as an academic to like what was the transition for you of going from that world to writing commercial fiction um yeah and when i, I say commercial fiction um, yeah. that's a compliment <laughs> I, I, mean, it, like, I mean like it it feels literary to me because it's well written, but it's like people will buy this book okay. therefore it is commercial
1: I mean, I hope so yeah i I hope they do um yeah, i it's interesting um. Okay, so I always wanted to be a writer from the time that I was in fourth grade and perhaps even before. But like fourth grade is when I had like the magic teacher that like changed everything. And I started telling people I'm going to be an author when I grow up. And um, I try after like I wrote a I wrote a novel for my senior thesis in college um, and completed one. And I really thought like this is my I'm going to be a writer. Like I went I moved mm-hmm. to Portland. <laughs> under the <laughs> Dilert- <Stay> no more. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, in the in the in the belief that somehow this would make me a writer, <laughs> which just shows how much I knew about it um at the time. Uh, and and then I kind of okay. Uh, yeah, real talk, I just I um turfed out because of mostly finances. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of had a mental health crisis in Portland because I ran out of money and I had, I had quit my toxic job. This is so weird. I never actually thought about this in connection to <laughs> the other stuff we're talking about. But yeah, I, I just gave up and moved back home for a second after that. And um, the way I ended up in grad school was almost this weird, bizarre accident after that. There was like a series of I was recovering from my failed noveling attempt and which wasn't really a failure, but like if I had stuck it out, I'd probably be I'd be on my 10th book now instead of my fourth. Yeah, I but, mean, you know, I just needed but I needed some I needed financial support, to be really honest. Yeah. Um, And I just didn't know how to get it or ask for it. Um. Uh, And I ended up uh, in a relationship that that weirdly um, culminated pretty dramatically in me moving to Chicago uh, to be in this master's program because I thought that it was possible It was like one of the places he was looking for a job. And this was a guy who I thought I was gonna marry. He had proposed and I said no for various reasons, but um, I was still sort of weirdly desperate to make this relationship work. And I, so much so that I, you know, I almost like picked, I picked a one-year masters in Chicago because I was like, maybe he'll be there. And yeah, man, I know, right? And then as soon as I got there, (laughs) as soon as I was in this program, I just hit the ground running and like, I immediately, I mean, it, I don't know. I just, I guess I just felt like I was thrown in the deep end like Mac, you know? Um, Mm. And I changed like Mac, you know, into a person who suddenly I was like, I can get this. I can do this. I can be in a PhD program. I can be a professor. This is now what I'm going to do. It's the thing that's going to show me who I am. Mm. And, um, I worked really hard and I, after just a couple of months in that master's, I got into the PhD program and, um, so just continued seamlessly on. And, uh, it took me a long time to figure out, you know, that for that high to wear off, basically, Mm -hmm. like it took me, it, it was so exhilarating. I actually really, I perform really well as an underdog and, um, maybe not so much once I feel comfortable and Mm -hmm. like know where I stand. Mm -hmm. So I I think people, that's just a personality thing. I don't Mm -hmm. know why that is. But so when I felt like an underdog, I was, I did great because I, everything that came my way, I was really grateful for. But then as soon as I started to really succeed in my program, I, the other stuff started catching up to me and I started sort of looking around and noticing like, oh, you know, this is, there's a lot of really messed up stuff happening like people I know um women of color, especially, but, you know, other people too are being sort of bullied out of the program slowly, Mm -hmm. you know, they're dropping like flies and, um, wow, people have no boundaries here. And, uh, it's amazing. Wow. This, the things that the professors would say to us that we would laugh about, and they were, it was like constant fodder for gossip. The graduate students would just spend all our time, like talking about these cult of personality professors and Mm -hmm. what that, can you believe this crazy thing like he or she said to me and then later looking back at those things I'm like wow that was I can't believe that was normal behavior it was just behavior that we laughed off at the time Mm -hmm. like oh these eccentric (laughs) life of the mind professors you know when um, a lot of the stuff they were doing just really wasn't okay and was very manipulative and um, they were very protected the professors I think were the were protected from the consequences of their lack of boundaries with students. Where while while we the students were left to just navigate that situation as best we could. So, you know, if you were good at sort of exploiting that lack of boundaries on your side, then maybe you would get somewhere with it. But then, it's, I don't know. I'm just I'm getting off into abstractions. I don't want to I don't want to get in the weeds there. But but basically, by the end you know, a lot of that had started to turn really, really negative. And I was feeling I would come out of professor meetings and cry, you know, and in in the bathroom and like everyone else (laughs) in grad school. It just began to that punishment. it, It was like a punishment and reward system. There were professors who would sort of stroke your ego one second and then this the the next day sort of arbitrarily would seem to turn on you and like want to punish you in this really uncomfortable way
0: yeah like that toxic parent yeah. slash yes. super villain <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I I mean, one of the
1: things I have talked about about this book, too, you know, without any spoilers, but I think the parallel is set up pretty early on that Matt comes from this. She has a toxic relationship with her mom and she's really set up for this quasi parental. Totally relationship yeah. with her advisors and that mm-hmm. is even if you are have a pretty normal relationship with your parents which I am lucky to have like very supportive normal parents um you it, the relationship like structurally is set up for you to behave toward your advisors as if they are like parental figures or um it's very creepy except and except
0: for it, the lack of sexual boundaries <laughs>
1: yeah well yeah it's very infantilizing and I think yeah. that's that's part of what sets up the lack of sexual boundaries because Mm -hmm. they aren't your parents. They're not really supposed to be taking care of you in that intimate way or punishing you. And there is something like It opens the door, I think, for a lot of inappropriate behavior that can go that way toward like sexual um, harassment or, you know, a relationship, you know. So anyway.
0: Even the emotional manipulation, even if there's nothing physical. Yeah,
1: exactly. The emotional intimacy is already quite dangerous, I think, Um, not to be alarmist, but, um, (laughs) anyway, so (laughs) that's all to say. Uh, yeah. So you were asking about the transition point.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So yes.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think I just by the time I was done with grad school, or by the time I had already moved down to Austin to be in my happy place, I had already, you know, started seeing a therapist and taking pharmaceuticals to help get my head out of the really, really bad place that I had become stuck. And um, I just, I didn't leave grad school knowing, or I mean, while well, I got my PhD. I didn't leave at all. That's <laughs> another thing. I, I, I kind of got it and then left academia, which still felt like leaving um, without a plan to write novels at all. You know, I just didn't know what the hell I was going to do or how I was going to make money. Um, I was already living with my my now husband at the mm-hmm. time. So I did have like that safety net and that is like a, a very real um, financial uh, support that so that real. helped yeah. me. Yes, like not enough writers talk about that aspect either, but um, but yeah. So I, and then over the next couple of years, I just took tons and tons of odd jobs and I waited tables again (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I I taught high school and um, did online moderation and just like every kind of odd job that wouldn't. I mean, I was looking for full time work, but I just I, I felt really useless. I couldn't really find anything because um, it was also just in the wake of the the big recession. This mm-hmm, was like mm-hmm. 2010, 20, 2010, 11. So, um, yeah. And my husband around that time some at some point was like, why don't you just write your novel? Because he knew me in undergrad, we actually had briefly dated in undergrad. Oh. I know. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's the one who at every step of the way he just kind of said things that I at first would be like I can't do that it's impossible you know like (laughs) why would you taunt me with that dream of my youth (laughs) and then it just turned out that it was possible partly because I had somebody there believing in me um yeah so and freelancing was kind of the bridge between that period of my life where I didn't know what was next and novel writing because I had this idea that well freelancing is writing and also I covered I covered arts journalism you know I was obviously I didn't know anything else I wasn't I'm not a journalist so (laughs) I was like well I'm writing book reviews and I'm interviewing authors just like you know just like you're (laughs) you're doing Mm -hmm. and um every time I interviewed an author, I asked them how they got their first book published and what their path to publication was and um, just filed that away. And uh, yeah, it just eventually, I mean, how I actually got my book deal is is pretty weird and anomalous. Yeah, you were, before we
0: started recording, you were going to tell me a little bit about that. But why don't you do it now? Sure. Yeah. I'm like, I'm telling you my life story. Sarah, you're a really good interviewer.
1: <laughs> I have not been. This is not how most of my interviews have gone <laughs> for this book. Um, I love it, actually. It's great. Uh, so I had joined a writer's group. My, my One of my husband's college friends um, had read some of my freelance work and liked it and knew I wanted to write a novel. So she was writing writing a novel too. And she reached out and was like, I'm starting a writer's group. And do you want to be in it? And that writer's group, like I'm still in it. This is eight years ago.
0: I was going to ask you about that. Is that, is that an in-person one right where you live or is it like over the airwaves? It's in person, or at least it
1: was. I mean, now it's now yeah. it's over the airway. But you're, but you're yeah. geographically. Yes. Okay. We all live uh, in Austin and um, we have been meeting every week, aspirationally every week. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not when people have kids, they tend to get a lot less <laughs> regular. Every week comes <laughs>
0: around yeah, pretty vast. often.
1: <laughs> yeah. But um, but basically it's a weekly group and we we don't have homework. We just read our work aloud to each other, which is one thing. I, I actually got that idea from Jennifer Egan from hearing her speak at a book festival like 15 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, d- we just read out loud and we are all writing novels for the most part, usually. And uh, we so it's more about support and feedback and just sort of generosity and love than it is about critique per se.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good, yeah. healthy sounding group so you so you got in this group before you were published with other people that were working on novels yeah and i that's where i wrote good is gone which
1: was my first novel although i did not i didn't think it was called good is gone at the time i have my own my own title for it (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh it was called other people's daughters when it was in oh i I like that
0: Thank you. I was that now I always, I'm one of those people who always gets my titles changed in at the very last minute by my publisher. Oh,
1: commercial (laughs) fiction is so fun. And and I mean, as I often
0: say, like all young adult fiction is commercial fiction, even literary YA is commercial fiction. So yes. Um, But I like that other people's daughters. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It was too literary. That was like the that was the reason it was rejected. <laughs> it sounded too literary. So they made it sound more like Gone Girl.
0: <laughs> exactly. It was like, and that's, how do we get Gone or Girl or yep. a G in this well, somehow?
1: Well, I, I always tell the story that I, that was the one thing I told my agent. They wanted to change it to something with Girl in the title. And the very first day I got my deal, I was like in the car on the way home uh, talking to <laughs> You know, my agent on the phone, and I was like, "Don't let them call a girl." We have to stipulate that it cannot be called girl. I think that's smart be because girl. a
0: huge wave of books with "girl" in the title came, and then it was hard to tell them apart.
1: Yeah, and people talked about it all. The- I was a book reviewer at the time, so even I talked about it about mm-hmm. how frustrating that trend was. So I said, "No, girl. That's my." But they can change the title, but not to "girl." And so she said, "Okay," and um, and then they came back at me with "gone." <laughs> <Good as> gone. <laughs>
0: and like, I was like well, okay I give up so how did you um like when so you I went from yeah how'd you go from writer's group to agent I had
1: the book in draft mostly and I was getting ready to query I had been reading um Janet Reed's query shark blog and trying to psych myself up to query and then I just opened Twitter one day or went to Twitter one day and they there was a pitch mad contest going on oh oh, and, pitch mad. Or, yeah and I or pit mad or whatever it is and I um, had never heard of it and barely you know I had barely any followers I was on Twitter totally recreationally and I just put up a tweet because I was like I don't know describing your book in 140 characters sounds like a cool challenge you know if I can do that then maybe I really am close and ready to query. So I put the tweet out there, not really expecting anything. And sure enough, like Sharon Pelletier, who at, at Distal Goderich uh, was one of the people watching that um that PitMad feed cause she was looking to pick up new clients and she liked my tweet, <laughs> which, <laughs> which means,
0: uh, It's like you getting know, handed the yeah. rose. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like a, it's like a query
1: me. It's like a wink. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, Hey, query me, you know? Um, and it, it, I think it would just meant, I think I, you still only sent the partial, I think. So for her, I think I just sent her the partial. Um, and she, Read it in a cu- a couple of weeks later and asked for the full. And she had my full manuscript. Sarah, she had it for like less than forty eight hours. Mm. and before she offered. it was that's awesome unbelievable she was so I I feel really weird telling that story I think there are lessons to draw from that story that like advice that I could pass on but in other ways it was like this magical you know it's like meeting your your husband or something online you know it's like it's this you're like I don't know we
0: just somehow like it is magical (laughs) but it's also it's a perfect example of one of those rare occurrences where what you're interested in And your development as a writer and what's in the cultural air at the moment Mm. just all coincided. And that's just pure. It is pure luck and magic, but it does happen sometimes. I mean, you describe on your website, you talk about your books as feminist thrillers and you. Mm that was a moment where yeah Gillian Flynn's novels and um people were excited about that type of book mm-hmm. so it like you know we always say like don't write to the market or try to predict the zeitgeist but if you happen to be on it <laughs> yeah get Good it out there you, you know yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well that
1: that was definitely like uh, uh, Gone Girl I read Gone Girl when I was sort of late in my draft I think and it it really, um, I don't know what to say about it. It, it just kind of opened my eyes in a lot of ways to, first of all, to what the genre could do. Like I mm-hmm. was expecting, I was expecting cause it was already a bestseller by the time I bought it. And I didn't read a lot in that genre, but I was expecting something kind of like just pulpy and fun. And I just was blown away. I think it's an incredibly crafted book. It, there's a reason it's a game changer, you know, it, it like ushered in an era you know, Mm -hmm. that we're still in in that genre, which is the I think it is fair to say the era of the feminist um, thriller or at least the thriller that takes women's experience super, super seriously and 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 realizes the stakes of women's experience,
0: not as and, just and like a dead. Them to be yeah. antiheroes the way yes. male leads have been. Well, it's allowed not anti antiheroes. I, th- I
1: think it's both, though, because I think I mean, one of the brilliant things about that book is that uh, amazing Amy, as she is <laughs> called, you know, she is an anti-hero she's a villain you know and and an anti-hero on one read but an extraordinary thing happens in that book was that which is that she is also actually victimized gaslit and Mm -hmm. abused Mm -hmm. and uh and also her husband who's her husband's not the one who does that to her but um the book is incredibly deft at revealing his misogyny over the course of the book uh progressing yeah. slowly to the point where he is talking about wanting just to
0: just hate ch- everyone at the end of that book. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> this is my
1: favorite, this is my favorite kind, you know, of book, but it anyway, I mean, I think it's just the, the consciousness, the feminist consciousness is there in that novel, even if it's, I don't know, even if it doesn't have a solution, it doesn't want to say that women are better than men at all. It's sort of equal opportunity, misanthropy. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite kind of book though, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but Yeah. Anyway, that 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 was a huge stroke of fortune, as it turned out for me, because my book was was also really about the fabric of women's existence in a way that didn't want didn't didn't have an easy solution and wasn't like, oh, girl power. Like, you know, women are just such heroes, like Mm -hmm. the women in my books are all kind of nasty, even the you know, I don't think victimhood and villainy are. Inherent qualities in people, I think everybody's got both in them, and it's and it's just situational.
0: I mean, a lot of times right. what forces you know, are going to push you exactly. more one way or the other in yeah. any given, which which can change over the course of a lifetime, let alone yeah. a novel. Oh, time is flying. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. We can. How how does the book pro- writing process work for you? Like, do you how okay. much stewing about an idea do you do like in your head before you start putting it on paper or do you have to like start getting it into words? I don't know. It just
1: varies. I mean, I, I love to sit down and get things down as fast as I can, but also I have a child and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you as you know, also in you know, the commercial fiction um, book
0: cycle, like the publishing cycle. Yeah, you're not supposed to languish for too long. <laughs> you're well, you, it's just yeah. like fondling your idea. <laughs> <laughs> fondling. I like that word, fondling. Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, I mean, I, the the promotion cycle is like really demanding, increasingly so because of social media. And, um, you know, I've really leaned into that as my career has progressed. I have leaned more and more into that aspect of it because I'm getting more comfortable with social media. But it takes a bite, man. I mean, that's your time <laughs> that you're spending on it. So I, I guess I've like, uh, yeah, i have like, yeah, I take well, I'll tell you what some of my practice is. I do daily journaling. I think the the only part of my practice that is daily, that's like the same ideally every day is journaling. I do morning pages, basically. Um, if you've ever read Julia Cameron's artist's way, that's, um, another thing that I did right when I left grad school was read the artist's way and do all the exercises. Uh, and um the morning pages is the thing that has stuck with me. It's just like three pages of longhand journaling and it's total word salad. It's like whatever comes to your head. Which
0: I feel like when I've tried to do morning pages, mm-hmm. it feels so arduous. <laughs> like <laughs> really I feel like one page would yeah. be right for me, but then that's then that that I'm not doing it right. And I'm very, um, oh. I'm I'm not a person who can allow myself to do things quote unquote wrong. So oh, I just don't Sarah, do it at all.
1: I feel you so hard. <laughs> can I give you the best recommendation? Like yes, the best piece please. of advice. <laughs> My notebook is a half size notebook. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> Okay. So, okay. Uh, I'm with you. <laughs> is it getting more,
0: is it getting yeah, less that could, arduous? That, yeah. that could work. <laughs>
1: yeah, because uh, I think the funny thing I realized after doing morning pages for a really long time is that it's, the page thing is not really about quantity of writing. It's about turning the page. Isn't that weird? like yeah at, I, yeah yeah because I'll I, your brain part of that like hand hand brain connection that you get writing longhand and like the text the um, texture tactile that's it like tactility of it is has to do with it's not just that you're writing longhand it's that you get you see your progress on a page and you get to the end of it and you turn it and I have found that like When I'm in my best, um, you know, on my best behavior and I'm really doing it every day and I'm doing three whole pages every day, you know, I'll often want to stop at one and a half pages. Like Mm -hmm. I'll feel like I'm pretty much done And then, you know, it's like the last 10 minutes of therapy, like all the interesting stuff comes out, (laughs) (laughs) you turn that last page and somehow it just pushes your brain that extra little bit. Um, So,
0: so are you putting stuff connected to like when I've done morning pages, stuff connected to like whatever book I'm writing rarely comes into play. So is there like book stuff going on in your morning pages? Sometimes um, it's it really varies a lot.
1: Like most of the time, I'm just dumping. Like Mm -hmm. I'll I try to do it in the morning, so I'll talk about like if I remember a dream. Sometimes I'll just write that out, Uh, but or I'll just be like, yesterday I did this. You know, this is how. I felt about it. Or if I'm having just an ang- like anxieties, I just write through that. It's just a complete feeling dump and then a lot of times again, that's what that third page is for. A lot of times when you get through the like boring stuff and just let it come out and be ugly and stuff, then sometimes I get ideas on that third page. Um, Or I start writing myself into a scene because Mm, mm -hmm. maybe I'll be like, oh, I'll I'll start talking about what I'm going to do that day. Sometimes I kind of give myself a little pep talk about what I'm going to try to do that day. And so I'll be like, oh, today I really need to, you know, finish this article and go to the grocery store. And then also there's that one scene I, Mm -hmm. I, I really wish, you know, so I'll start kind of working it out. Hmm. Talking myself through the scene. And then sometimes I'll even start writing out the scene, like it'll start coming to me. So yeah, I've, I, I do work out scenes there. And I also have new ideas there because like no idea is too stupid for morning pages, right? Like you can it's true, yeah, you know, you could just say anything in your morning pages, yeah. and then when I'm actually writing, when I'm hardcore writing, like you know, trying to draft, especially at a on a retreat or in some like you know really binge writing, I will use a similar morning a morning page esque practice multiple times a day like all through the day when I finish a chapter or a scene I'll like journal what happened in that scene and how I feel about it and then I'll journal what I'm gonna like this is what I'm gonna write in the next scene and then I so I kind of use it also to interrupt um, the actual writing and sort of reflect and take stock and set goals um But that's something like sometimes I feel like if I could just carry my journal around with me and like literally just be journaling every three hours all day,
0: (laughs) I would get so much more done because, man, it really helps. That's interesting. I've never I've never heard anyone describe a process like that. Um, and, And does that sort of end up functioning as an outline in a way for you when you're drafting? Yeah, kind of. Uh,
1: I don't really, I'm not good at outlining if I try to do the, you know, the outline. <laughs> um, I've got, I've tried to get better at it because I think it, it does make things a lot more efficient. It would be great to be able to really outline. Right? Yes. I really envy the people in a way who can, but I have found that when I outline, I, what I come up with in outline not only is it not as interesting as what I come up with when I'm just writing through it, but it also doesn't work. Like, I'll be like, I thought I did the math on this. You know, why is, why isn't it, it turns out, you know that was hopelessly insufficient mm-hmm. to get this character <laughs> into this situation like why did I think it was so um instead the journaling helps it sort of functions as like almost a rudder you know like mm-hmm. like um I take the coordinates and I adjust the rudder a little bit this way or that while I'm going so I can sort of see the, the goal in the distance like and I can sort of keep myself on track and also but be still um taking advantage of the, uh, the spontaneity that I need. Uh, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, it, like I, if I, it doesn't kill the, the creativity. Yes, yeah, that's right. That discovery. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good word for it.
0: I do. I always claim that my first drafts are essentially outlines. I think of them as discovery uh-huh. drafts, but I, Me too. I also have this because of this grass is greener Thing I'm always afflicted with. I just look at friends who are really good outliners. and I think if only I could master that, then writing would never be hard again. But oh, right. I should know after <laughs> doing this for like 20 years. That is lies. It's all lies. You know, um, it's just different brains. Like we've all got different brains. It's, it's true. It's true. Uh, a few like sort of semi lightning round things. Oh, yeah. And, oh, we were going to talk a little bit about. Um, I saw a couple of days ago you tweeted something about Goodreads. And <laughs> I was thinking, like, oh my God, like she looks at her Goodreads. Cause whenever I see an author who looks at their Goodreads, I mm-hmm. feel a sympathetic pain in my body. <laughs> but um, so, like, do you look at Goodreads regularly? Yeah. And, and what's the role generally of social media in your? You know, like, I guess your life, your life. Yeah, your life.
1: I do look at Goodreads, although I tend to look at it more obsessively, like before the book is out and in the first, I don't know, month or whatever after it's out. So, you know, Good is Gone now has so many reviews Every once in a while, when I'm like feeling down, I'll peek back to see how many people have rated it, just to be like, oh, people are still reading it. Mm -hmm. But I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't care about the reviews for Good is Gone. Like that book came out in 2016, uh, so I don't really even register that much what's what the reviews, what the valence of them is. Uh, With a book that's coming out, you know, like Bad Habits, I totally i'm just watching the numbers go up and being like oh when is there going to be another review you know <laughs> and it's not the healthiest thing and i no, read about, no, it's really not you know <laughs> but but uh, but honestly you know what sarah i i i try not to be too judgmental about my own desire to look at them and i That's have even fair. i found yeah. i have found that like i can integrate that into my into a healthy um Worldview because, okay, it's not necessary. It's really not. But I think that if you have that itch and you're doing it, then you have to find a way to be okay with it. That's just true of that's, everything yeah, we that's do. True. That's when true. When we have a compulsion, it's not that judging it is the worst possible thing you can do because it's like an itch, you know? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to need to keep scratching it more and more. The more you like tell yourself, no, 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 don't do it. You have to find a way to breathe through those things and not judge yourself for them because the truth is like there's a reason you feel that itch like there's some physiological need that you're that you're scratching you know and like Mm -hmm. you should not to be super cheesy but this is how i am (laughs) like you should honor that need like what is the need that is driving you to look at your goodreads reviews when you know you're gonna see like two star reviews saying your characters are unlikable for the millionth time right (laughs) 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 um and and for me I have been able to like. I see them as a focus group of sorts. Like mm-hmm. even if I, I've even heard, if I, yeah, I've heard others yeah. say that, yeah. And I, it's like actually information. If I can think of it as just data, then I feel less assaulted by it. And another thing, I feel also very cheesy, but I do feel gratitude for those one and two star reviews. I mean, yeah, they piss me off, but those people bought my book or they read my arc or they, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. they went online and left a review, which is more than, you know, some of my best friends do. That's good <laughs> you know point. What I mean? <laughs> when I was reviewing, like as a book reviewer for uh, mostly for the Chicago Tribune, um, you know, I, I had to really square with myself. I mean, this is before I was an author, so I probably, I don't think I could be as honest now as I was then as a book reviewer, Mm -hmm. but I used to tell myself, and it's the truth that, um, I mean, my editor told me this first, that, a a review, a negative review in a, you know, in like a Chicago Tribune type daily is much better than no review.
0: Yeah. Yeah that's because true. it
1: it raises the visibility of a book um And it, you know, advertising studies have shown like, you know, psychology of, um, of marketing has been, there's been lots of research on that. And, uh, yeah. People People go, oh, oh, I've heard of that book. Yes, exactly. They've seen something, (laughs) they've seen something like seven times. It doesn't matter if like five of those times were negative, what they Mm -hmm. register is like, oh, I, I'm familiar with this. I'm hearing a lot of buzz. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so I, I know that's all very cheesy, like self-talk, but it really, Really helps me um, and I even though there are certain like um, bet noir <laughs> that I still have like that unlikability thing it's like it's in so many of my reviews even the good ones will often say that the characters were unlikable and it I can't say it doesn't get under my skin but I just try and focus on like feeling grateful that they reviewed it at all. And that, mm-hmm. that helps me. Cause I know I'm going to look at the reviews, you know, I'm not going to successfully keep myself from doing that until, until the book's been out a
0: while and my skin is thicker. Yeah. Good words. Good words. And I like cheesy self-talk. Um, okay. Good. I'm <laughs> all for it. So uh, what's, what's a creative obstacle or a career obstacle that you have to be wary of? Mm.
1: Um, I'm actually feeling really good right now in my practice. And I'm in this moment, I I had my second book did really poorly, by the way, we were talking about poor performances earlier. Mm -hmm. And um, so my first one was really strong. My second one performed not well at all. And, uh, and this book, I have no idea. But I think I've done a lot of work in the last couple of years during the writing of this book. It was, the writing of it was very healing in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I I have embraced a lot of um, what I thought of as my weaknesses and just tried to lean really hard into them. Uh, So I'm not really feeling, I mean, right now, my first instinct was to be like, I don't know. I don't like to think of I mean everyone has obstacles to success. You know, I've got a kid. Mm-hmm. I I can't always write every day. I get frustrated um, but I am at the same time I'm feeling like more liberated in many ways than I've ever felt. This is almost the first time I, in my career I've felt this this way that That's I could just That's awesome. And- I accept that answer. (laughs)
0: Well, well, well. I would say the
1: one, the one thing I learned while I was writing this book that really set me free, but it was a big. I think it was a weakness that I didn't recognize early on, is that for my first two books, they they didn't, especially the first one, didn't require a lot of editing, um, because they crash published it, so it it didn't have time for a lot of editing. Mm -hmm. Um, But even so, there were some editorial notes like that I didn't really like, but I just I swallowed everything because I was Mm -hmm. determined I was determined to be like a good little author. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the second one too was written really quickly under duress and I just I mean I didn't really follow my gut on that book as mm-hmm. much as I should have. And the third one, this one I was the first one that I wrote. It was like a new a new contract and it was so close to my heart. It really came from the gut this one. Mm-hmm. And so and I also for for the first time I was really working with an editor who was incredibly experienced brilliant at the top of her game really. And I felt so like lucky. I was like, this is the editor I've been waiting for. She's gonna make me a stronger writer. And, uh, and then she gave me some edits back that I didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to this point in my career was to Did say, say no. no. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that lesson she, and of course she was experienced enough to know that when an author says that, you know, she was like, I trust you, Amy, like, you know, just try to fix the problem, but why don't you try to fix it your way? Yeah. Yeah you know? And I was like, yes, thank you. And I, you know, she gave me enough rope and like enough time. And um, that was just huge. That experience and like seeing, seeing how the final product came out and how I felt about the final product like it has given me so much, you know, and it I, makes like, such
0: a difference to feel yeah. like this book, no matter how it performs or what people yes, think, yes, this book is what I wanted it to be. Yes, it's exactly as, close as I could get at the stage I'm at now, and it yes. just feels good. Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Did you ever have that early in your career, or like how did oh, that yeah. play out for you? I mean, okay, I think that's probably really common for for first couple books. Uh, and especially women, maybe second women. books well yeah <laughs> women. women yeah there's like you said there's there's um you want to be the like you said the good little author uh-huh. the good girl uh-huh. you don't want to be the difficult person diva you don't want to be a diva you want to meet your obligations and just like and then after you're in it for a while and you hear stories and observe friends and just sort of have more conversations and open your eyes to reality, you're like, you know, there's there's actually not a real benefit mm. for being a good girl. If <sighs> if you're sacrificing, you know, either like the time you need to really make the book what you need it to be or, you know, if you're not with the right editor or um, whatever the thing is there's not really a reward for it. So you see difficult people, particularly men continue to be Uh rewarded in the industry. And you're like, why am I bending over backward to like, not ever be experience a moment of disappointment or disapproval from, from people when like, this is my book. And, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a real thing.
1: Oh, you've said a mouthful, Sarah. I'm going to like, <laughs> I might just have to like take that clip record of that recording and just kind of play it on repeat. Yeah, that was incredible. Play
0: it. It, 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 I mean, and it's one of those things I think you can only learn through experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think someone could go in with their first book and feel that level of awareness, even if you have like a hundred people telling you at a time how it really is or like what you need to do, unless you just have an incredible like backbone and and thickness of skin
1: you know it's also like I really wanted to learn I knew I didn't know about the industry I knew nothing about you know like I came to this experience it what felt it felt late to me I mean I was very young but I was in my like mid or late 30s I guess when I published good is gone and I just you know I was like I have things to learn I want to learn from every editor I want to You know, and I think that was a good, generous impulse, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, maybe because this book, I was like writing about those relationships and that people pleasing, that anxious people pleasing, you know, Mm-hmm. personality that like is like a kind of a schoolgirl mentality and I just um yeah it was like liberating I think I just had to care enough about the words to about the work yeah, you know what I, I mean?
0: mean another thing that can happen is you you go if you if you've gone in with like a lot of openness and optimism and then yeah you're in it for a while and you become a bit jaded and then sometimes <laughs> sometimes what happens is there's a temptation for like you to stop caring and you're like well whatever yeah. like it is what it is and then that feels bad when that book comes out and you know like i didn't care about this enough yeah. um, and that feels worse than anything. And so I think this is just a gift of age too, but I know like the work I'm doing right now, I just feel like, I don't know. I've just learned like I have to care more than anyone. Yep. Um, And sometimes if you're oriented toward external approval or avoiding disapproval, you're not caring about it more than anyone because you're caring too much about everyone else's experience. So you just really have to care about your book more than anyone else is going to care about it. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever that means. And whatever it looks like Um, I have to now uh, just a super quick story just for anyone out there. And maybe you have a story like this too, but speaking of the good girl syndrome, Um, And I know we're going long and I'm going to let you go very soon. But I was just when we were talking about trying to be the good girl, it reminded me of when I started out and like was going on a lot of book tours and going to a lot of conferences and trade shows and stuff. I had so many times where I'd be like talking with fellow women writers um, who would say things like, I don't know. Like I'm thinking about, I'm so tired. I just want to go in my room and order room service, but mm. I don't, you know, I want to figure out a way to pay for it myself or whatever. And then I would hear stories about like such and such male author had his entire suitcase full of clothes sent out for overnight dry cleaning and <laughs> ordered a pay-per-view movie and order room service. Like they're not even thinking like, Ooh, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to do this. And like spend too much on my sandwich. Um, and then I just sort of went, you know what? <laughs> Fuck this. I'm yeah, not- right? <laughs> I just, you know, I'm here. I'm tired. I got to like, you got to go be alone in my room and like get a burger and like move on with my life. Isn't
1: it so funny what feels like a, like such a luxury like, yeah, it just like your basic human needs, getting your basic human needs met can feel like such an imposition. Sometimes I don't
0: want to anyone by having yeah.
1: needs, what will they, <laughs> what will they think if I have to eat after a long day?
0: Um, yeah. uh, um, what's a piece of like pop culture, books, TV, music, whatever, something that's like helping you get through all of this tm right now um i mean there have been certain like pieces of art
1: that have been really meaningful to me i think the most recent one that uh just like gave me life as they say is uh lovers rock the the steve mcqueen um film uh
0: have you seen this oh the small axe Yes. yes.
1: Yeah. It's the only one the I've cycle.
0: seen. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen them yet, but they're in my queue. I know what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I haven't seen them all. Um, I'll go back to them at some point. I've been having a lot of trouble watching TV during the pandemic, weirdly. So my husband and I have been watching more movies uh, than TV. And uh, this I thought was TV for a long time. So I just was like, I don't know. <laughs> and then he was like, no, no, we have to watch this one though. Everyone is talking about this one, and Lover's Rock is just uh, so incredible. <laughs> it's just that, like yeah. the experience of being in a party. That's like that. It's like the best part of every party you've ever been to. Um, it, like the vibe is so incredible that I just felt like fulfilled in this weird way watching it. I mean, I think I might have cried during it, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, even though, you know, it's a very joyful movie, um, but it's more than that. It's extremely tender. And um, it made me sad to think that I couldn't be in a party like that for a while. But who am I kidding? I'm a parent. I haven't been <laughs> to a party like that for a while anyway. Um, so, yeah, that was lovely. Um Early in the pandemic, I watched uh, uh, Joe Parra Talks With You. Oh, I don't don't know that. It's a real gem of a series that I think is now, I think it's over. I'm not sure there's going to be another season. It was on Adult Swim, and it's these little 10-minute or 12-minute episodes. Uh, It's a comedian named Joe Parra who uh, is sort of, he's young, but he sort of affects the I don't know the um quirks or whatever the 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 mannerisms of like an old midwestern gentleman mm-hmm. who's like uh, who's just kind of living in this like small town um, and it's it's hard to describe what is so incredibly comforting about it but it's very very funny it's almost like wince comedy but but also <laughs> with like a deep heart to it Well,
0: that sounds um, like something I would
1: like and they're so short. You can just like inhale them. Yes. So yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Amy. Where can people find out more about you and your books? Um, and perhaps you, if they, yeah. if, if people like to be on the medias, where do yes. people find you? Um,
1: they can find me at, um, amy-gentry.com. A-M-Y-G-E-N-T-R-Y.com. And on Twitter, I am Unlanded Gentry, which is a really dumb pun
0: (laughs) from my... (laughs) It's memorable. I I like it and it's memorable, although I always feel for anyone who Every author I've talked to who started their social media accounts yeah. a while ago and are like, if only I just used my knitting. Yeah,
1: right. It's, it's such a piss But so I'm actually I'm at Unlanded Gentry on Instagram and Twitter, and that's mostly where people can find me. I have an author page on Facebook, too, but I think Twitter is my primary hangout.
0: Thank you so much for taking a chance on me. I really, really appreciate it. I'm so glad you did. (laughs) Well, I, I really enjoyed Bad Habits and it was, it was a great, um, I just like spent like two months reading a Herman Wouk novel and I was just like ready for something (laughs) I could read in a few days and just like whip through it. And I loved it and congrats on the new book. And, um, and Thanks again, everyone who is listening. And thank you to Substack subscribers. Thanks to Dave Connis for the theme music. Thanks for liking and sharing the podcast. Hang in there. Stay safe. Get vaccinated if you can. And I'm glad you're here.